Hello, and welcome to the InVivo podcast. I'm David Wild, pharma and biotech reporter for InVivo. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Andrew Catchpole, who is Chief Scientific Officer at HVivo, a specialist contract research organization. Among other services, they conduct human challenge studies for testing infectious and respiratory disease vaccines and antivirals, and they've carved out a position as the global leader in these studies. Today, we'll be talking about that aspect of their work, the human challenge studies. Dr. Catchpole, welcome to the podcast, and thanks for speaking with me about your company and about the state of human challenge studies. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So why don't we start off with the basics? What are human challenge studies and what advantages do they offer over typical field studies in vaccine and antiviral development? Sure, absolutely. That's a good place to start. So challenge studies in the essence, where we take healthy volunteers and we deliberately expose them to a known pathogen, for example, influenza virus or coronavirus. So that's the key difference really from a challenge study to to a normal field study. When we talk about field studies, what we really mean by is is those those clinical trials where we're testing a vaccine or an antiviral, where the subjects in the trial have contracted the disease naturally in the community by going about their daily business. In a challenge study, the reverse happens that we recruit deliberately very healthy volunteers and we're deliberately giving them disease or at least exposing them to the pathogen to try and give them the disease. Now of course that's that's all done under under the greatest safety constraints. Um, hence I, I was stressing the healthy volunteer because you do have to be very healthy to participate in these studies because you can only do challenge studies in volunteers where you would naturally expect them to recover from the disease really without intervention, or you have have a 100% guaranteed way of treating the disease. One, one or two of those needs to be true, of course. We can't deliberately expose someone to a pathogen and then, then cause them some severe disease. Of course, that's not the intent. But the challenge studies do have a, a lot of benefits over traditional field trials. If we come back to how I described the field trials where, where you give someone a vaccine, and you ask them to go and live their normal daily life in the community, well, most of those who you've been vaccinated actually will not come into contact with the pathogen. So you can't tell anything about the efficacy. You're literally down, down to pure probability whether they actually become in contact with the pathogen at all. I think a good example of this is the coronavirus vaccines, the SARS-CoV-2 vaccines that we're all familiar with from the pandemic. If if you delve into the numbers of those, if you look at the headlines, some of those were involved in like 44,000 people vaccinated. But then you look about how many were actually involved in the efficacy assessment of that 44,000 inoculated. And it was approximately about 100 because only 100 of them had had measurable disease. And of course, if you don't come into contact with a pathogen, we really can't tell anything about whether that vaccine is efficacious or not. You get indications of safety, but you don't tell anything about the efficacy. Now, on a challenge trial where you're deliberately exposing volunteers to the pathogen, everybody on the trial is exposed. So instead of needing to recruit 44,000 volunteers, we only need to recruit equivalent of the 100 because we're we're exposing all of them so we can guarantee exposure. So therefore, you get the efficacy on every single member who participates in that trial. And because it's very much smaller numbers of volunteers, that means you can do these studies much, much quicker than field trials. And you don't have to rely on the disease being in the community. So if we think of flu studies, you often have to chase them around the globe because flu is obviously very seasonal. And if there's 
there's hardly any flu one season, then you might need to go to the to the southern hemisphere from the northern hemisphere and vice versa, or carry on over a few different flu seasons until you've got enough recruited. But with channel studies, that's not an issue because you can conduct them all year round because we're direct, directly exposing them to the pathogen. Mm-hmm. So a lot of benefits. Interesting that you talked about volunteers having to be healthy and there having to be a kind of a guaranteed or uh, certainty about them recovering from the illness, because that was going to be one of my questions about the ethics of, of doing these studies and the challenges of maybe recruiting volunteers to to be infected with something that isn't the most attractive proposition. Yeah, that's, uh, that's one way of looking at it, certainly, because, you know, if you if you if you, if you explain to someone, well, you know, we're going to give you a disease where there's no known treatments. Well, of course, that sounds very scary and very horrific. But then that's only that's of course is only part of the explanation. And and the key with it, with any clinical trial and challenge studies, no exception, is that is it's truly informed consent. And, and by that, we need to explain to them the entire context for everyone to participate in these studies. Now, the viruses which we work with, um, are not weakened in any way, that they're, they're, they're deliberately kept wild type, um, which means they're the same as what are circulating mm. naturally. So if we gave those viruses to, to the proportion of our population, which are very susceptible to severe disease, typically with respiratory pathogens, that it can be the very, very young or the very elderly, then they could well have very severe outcomes. But of course, that's not the population that we recruit onto channel studies. Now, a healthy young adult, maybe 20 to, to 40 years of age, um, would be expected to clear this disease absolutely naturally themselves. So we would, that's part of our screening is to make sure they are absolutely healthy and do not have any predisposition to more severe outcomes such that they, they don't need to have any treatment. So if you can if you can give those individuals the disease, they would get a relatively mild disease. We can still get enough of disease that we're able to test the vaccine or the antiviral drug, depending on what's being tested. That could be very informative to go forward. And then when they go forward and into, into field trials in the more risky populations, like, say, for example, the pediatrics or, or into elderly populations, they already have good confidence then that these drugs or vaccines are efficacious and are, are working. So it really does help with the risk profile, but having had that, that clear human viral challenge data and that clear efficacy data beforehand. So so you see, it, it can, it's only part of the picture to say there's no known cures because these, these viruses actually would be expected to, to not really cause any serious outcome at all in the individuals which we, which we recruit to these studies. Um, H. vivo has a pretty interesting history. It dates back to 1946 and started off in the common cold unit at um, Salisbury Hospital in the UK. Can you tell us a little bit more about its origins? Yeah, absolutely. So UK is fairly unique in this in this regard where we have a long and continuous history of doing ethically approved challenge studies. And, and you rightfully mentioned the common cold institute. It's very famous worldwide. Um, the institute was set up on, on the Salisbury Plain. Actually, it was an ex-US ex, um, army site, um, and then they pulled out, and the, and the buildings became use for this challenge site. Um, and then it, can, it maintained there, actually, right up until, I believe it was into the 90s. So a long history of doing challenge studies on that site with a variety of different viruses from flu, some of the coronaviruses that were circulating at the time, also rhinovirus, which is another common cold virus. And our founder, Professor John Oxford, who founded Retroscreen, which is the first name of the company, which has since changed its name to HVivo, uh, but the same company. So our, our founder actually did 
was one of the researchers um, at the Common Cold Institute. So there was continuity from right from Common Cold Institute closing to HVivo starting to do channel studies with that knowledge that that Professor Oxford had gained from the Common Cold Institute, and then him coupled with um, Dr. Rob Lampkin Williams, who's who was uh, CEO at the time in HVivo, then set up really the commercial unit of, of which was RetroScreen and now HVivo. And we've been doing channel studies now since 2001 in the UK, continuously on a commercial scale. So doing as a contract research organisation to help biotech and also and also pharma to to test their products um, in these in these challenge studies. But of course, challenge studies aren't actually new concepts. Although what I've described there is is the concept of doing them in a very routine, ethically approved manner. But of course, challenge studies in terms of medicine, if we look back in the history of medicine, have actually been going back for very famous documented more than two hundred years. So I think probably Edward Jenner. I think is the one of the most famous ones I can think of as an example where he famously gave James Phipps, a, a boy called James Phipps, cowpox to and then to test whether he could protect him against smallpox. Um, and that was way back in 1796, so a long, long time ago. And then also Louis Pasteur was doing challenge studies with rabies, giving giving people rabies. And then Walter Reed Institute did similar things uh, with yellow fever and Smorotinsef uh, for influenza. So there's a long history, if you look back through medicine, of, of channel studies being used to either just to, to look about early disease and to understand the disease, but more typically to look, see if they were able to protect them with, with early vaccines. So the concept of channel studies isn't new, but I think what is relatively new for modern times is, is this very rigorous way of doing it in a truly ethically informed and patient informed manner. And if I understand correctly, also the idea of doing it in a commercial environment is also pretty new. Uh, right now, most commercial challenge studies are conducted in the UK. Can you tell me why that is and it, what needs to be done to generate wider adoption of the model? Yes, that's, it's true that the vast majority of commercial challenge studies are, are done in the UK. And I think that's um, for two reasons. One, of course, HVivo has is a very specialist organisation dedicated to doing channel studies. So because it is is still currently relatively niche, a lot of the customers do come to HVivo worldwide because we're we're known for it because it's still a very small niche area. So they they search us out. And um, so of course that's because we're founded here. But I think because we've got this long history in the UK of doing channel studies, it means the ethical review boards are very used to seeing them as well. So it's not a new concept. It's when you, when you submit any clinical trial for approval, you need to get the regulators and ethics to approve it. And that's that's no different in the UK as it is, as it is in most other countries as well. But I think the difference in the UK is that the those ethics boards are very used to seeing channel studies. So the concept itself of can you do a channel study has been long discussed in the UK and is agreed that this is ethical and suitable to do with the with the right expertise and very careful screening on the volunteers. Those conversations quite simply haven't really been had in many countries and and the culture really isn't the same in many countries as well. It's actually illegal in many countries because it's if you, if you take the medical Hippocratic oath at the very literal of thou shalt not cause harm. Now some some cultures deem this as a potential to cause harm, so therefore take it on that literal and channel studies are not actually able to be done in a, in a number of countries, probably more countries than are actually favourable of doing them. So I think it's got that cultural background of, of do the population as a whole see this type of scientific research as ethically acceptable? And I think a lot of that is 
is it is it open about what's being done like it is in the UK and many other countries is it open are we transparent and is the, is the culture readily accepting this and some countries that's not the case for equally in the regulatory environment the MRHA is our, is our regulator in the UK and they similarly have seen a lot of challenge studies and, and very accepting of the concept of doing a challenge study for for testing vaccines and antivirals as well so I think the combination of our our long history, uh, our accepted and a transparent way of doing doing the ethical here and, and the culture in the UK and and pioneering on the research side of things means that we are well suited in doing that. Some other countries firstly need to need to have that cultural debate and that's extremely difficult. You can't change a cultural perception overnight. So even if you had a government favourable, it's uh, a cultural thing. Is it's, it's a hard and slow thing to change. Um, HPVO has been involved in a COVID characterization study and uh, in the development of a COVID challenge model from early in the pandemic. Um, the company is now developing an Omicron challenge model, if I understand correctly. What role will it play in testing COVID treatments moving forward? Yeah, that's right. So HPVO was, was involved in, in in the collaboration that did the world's first coronavirus or SARS-CoV-2 challenge study. So at HVB, obviously, this is our expertise, which is what we do as a, as a company. So everybody in the company is some way involved in, in doing the challenge studies because this is entirely our focus. So like many others, when the pandemic came along, I think all of us asked ourselves, what can we do to help the pandemic? And at HVB, we felt that, that Doing a challenge studies and setting this up was something that we potentially could do and, and could help could help with the pandemic response and help advance medicine by setting this up. <clears throat> so we we announced um, back in in May 2020 that that we were going to look to set up um, coronavirus challenge models, uh, and then we we then went and raised money from our investors to go and make the challenge virus. So of course we must first. Before we can do a challenge study, you have to have a, essentially a medical grade version of the virus, which we call it a challenge virus. So it's been made just like a vaccine would under under GMP conditions. So we committed to doing that as early as, as May 2020, not knowing at that time whether we would be able to go fully ahead and actually do a challenge study, but but also understanding the fact that it can take six to nine months to produce a challenge virus. You know, as a pandemic response, it wouldn't have been acceptable to wait until we had all the regulatory approvals and, and it being very clear that we could go ahead and then start producing a challenge virus. But we just added nine months onto the timeline. So, so we committed to making the challenge virus on the on the understanding that we may never use it if if it was never it was never going to be feasible to move forward with the challenge study. And actually what happened was we then were approached by the UK government to to join a, cons a consortium funded by the UK government, which which was really m very much a pandemic response. Now, the, the thinking was at that time, of course, vaccines were, were being developed and, and some of the clinical data was coming through, but it really wasn't known if that first wave of vaccines would be efficacious. And the UK government was in the position of, okay, okay if that first wave of vaccines don't work or don't work as well as we would like, then what tool do we have available to quickly decide which of the next generation candidates are going to be ones to procure and to advance and to really to really push forward with? So they needed a quick way of, of doing those assessments and that's where the challenge study concept came in. So they funded setting up at the challenge model for exactly that, such that if the first wave were not successful, then the challenge studies would have been used immediately to to shortlist which ones to move forward with for the reasons I mentioned earlier, because you can do that very quickly with a challenge study, very few volunteers exposed. And within a few months, you've got 
you've got efficacy data and therefore you can then know that's the one to procure and that's the one to roll out to the nation. So it, it was very much done as a pandemic preparedness setup. Now it's <clears throat> wonderful that that we didn't need to use it for in that first instance for testing vaccines because of course the first generation vaccines were successful and were indeed rolled out very successfully. So it's due to the success of those first vaccines that we didn't need to use it on those that first challenge model that was set up, um, which is which is fantastic. So, but of course we did still learn a lot about the disease and and that did that did go through into the pandemic preparedness and also the planning. For example, we we had data such that how many days after inoculation exactly down to the number of hours because you can measure very very precisely in china studies um how many hours since inoc since exposure to someone first test positive for a lateral flow versus a pcr test how long it is it before before they become con contagious and have symptoms then how long is it before they stop shedding virus so all these are really important questions that help when you're when you're thinking about sorts of control measures to put in on a public public level so that was still extremely useful and, and HVivo's role in that was we we oversaw the manufacture of the challenge viruses how to make a challenge viruses is very much uh, HVivo's expertise and we partnered with Great Ormond Street Hospital to use their facility and and their staff in in their GMP facility but the virological knowledge came from HVivo then to, to make the challenge virus and then HVivo conducted the entire challenge study and we partnered with it in Imperial for a medical oversight and and a, a coordination perspective uh, so HVivo really had a huge role in doing it so but of course that what's happened with the pandemic which has happened with you know every every epidemic respiratory virus is expected to evolve over time and that's no different with with the coronavirus pandemic. So of course it's evolved over time and we've seen different dominating different dominating variants. So we've seen an even renaming of the variants when so what we worked with originally was the so-called pre-alpha strain because it was just before that that alpha strain came about and of course we had numerous other variants and now we've got Omicron and its sub-variants which are, which are now dominating. So as we move forward now we're we're now um, setting up an Omicron challenge model. And the reason for changing the strain is that in the UK, we most of our population has now been vaccinated and they've been vaccinated predominantly against the original Wuhan strains. And we know for our collaborators doing challenge studies at, at Oxford University that that if you try and challenge someone, I give them the original Wuhan strain, they are actually protected very well against 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 reinfection from the current vaccines. They're also protected very well if they've if they've had prior natural exposure. Now that's not so much the case with Omicron. Omicron does seem to be that bit more infectious that if you've been vaccinated previously or if you've been exposed naturally previously, you do seem to be able to be reinfected with with the Omicron strain, um, albeit not necessarily to a high severity. It, it does have this ability to reinfect. So we're certainly not not finished in terms of pandemic is still causing huge amounts of disease and mortality worldwide. We do need next generation vaccines. So therefore there still is a need to test new vaccines in an expedited manner and in a clear, precise, careful manner that challenge studies offers. That's why we're setting up the Omicron model, which we now believe we will be able to use in this vaccinated population. 
we can't use the original model because essentially they're all, everybody's immune, we wouldn't be able to see any disease. So, but with Omicron and the same principles, then we can then we can inoculate previously vaccinated and or people who have been exposed to other older strains and still expect to see disease and therefore measure efficacy of new vaccines. Another area of focus for the company is RSV. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the unmet need uh, for RSV and the challenges of developing an effective RSV challenge model and vaccine? Yes, absolutely. So, so RSV or respiratory syncytial virus for its full name, I think it's, it's not a household name and it should be because it's it's one of those one of those viruses that is actually a really, really hugely important. It it causes huge amounts of of disease, uh, particularly in pediatrics and essentially all all of the babies in, in the Western world by the time they get to two would have it would have been exposed to RSV. And sadly, some of those have very severe disease. Even healthy babies have can have very se severe disease, get hospitalized and, and essentially can many die from it. So I think it's actually become more worldly, more worldly known and more more of a household name since the pandemic because what we've seen since the pandemic is a lot of viruses respiratory viruses were actually dampened down and we didn't have very many other respiratory viruses circulating for for a year or so i think this was a really an outcome of of all the control measures put in place to try and contain the coronavirus pandemic actually of course also helped the spread of all the normal respiratory viruses that would normally circulate rsv is one of them but that didn't last forever, of course. Now, now in most countries, UK and US and Canada are all the same, that we're now back to living our lives with minimal, if any, control measures whatsoever. Um, we've seen a real insurgence of, of um, respiratory pathogens this year. And, and this, this uh, cold season has seen, seen a massive epidemic of RSV, influenza, and many other respiratory pathogens. So we, we are seeing a lot of the ICUs being filled up with, with these babies. Um, it really is huge, huge amounts. Um, and it's 60,000 hospital deaths in children, under five globally every, every year from, from this disease. And and also, it's not just the very, very young. It's the, actually the elderly now. It's becoming increasingly recognised that RSV is, a, is an important pathogen for the elderly and simply can cause really severe outcomes and, and deaths in the elderly. Now, as a vaccine community, it's been trying to develop a vaccine for RSV for you know the couple of decades now, with very limited success. Um, in fact, no success really until very recently. And the challenge models. Have, have really been instrumental in the last two years of bringing forward some some RSV vaccines. So up until that point, all the vaccines that have been tried against RSV had really been failing to get get clear efficacy and, and really stop the disease. But now we've done some challenge studies in healthy adults, uh, three or four very successful ones now, where where we've been able to demonstrate really great efficacy. Uh, the most recent being being Pfizer's. RSV vaccine, also Bavaria Nordics, um, RSV vaccine and Janssen's RSV vaccine, all in the public to, public domain that have used HVVO's RSV challenge model and been able to show really great efficacy. And of course, that's really important because what that then does, it, it gives great confidence to 
those others others in the vaccine community that efficacy can be achieved with RSV. So that increases investment into this very important pathogen. It also gives the confidence of those who did test their vaccines that it is, it is worth the large investments to then take them forward into those pivotal phase three trials to then try and get licensure for these vaccines and really start to try and control a disease that's really had had no control measures uh, for since its existence really even even the antivirals were still lacking very effective antivirals against this against this pathogen so if you're if you're contracting RSV it's still very difficult to treat treat these babies so it really can be a devastating disease so to have challenge models at the forefront of really driving forward and improving vaccination and trying to really meet an unmet medical need I think it's really important and, and really key and we we really hope some of these vaccines which have gone through the challenge model do go on to licensure do go on to really start to control this really important disease. How do you develop new challenge models that accurately reflect real world illness and chains of transmission? Yeah that's a good question because there's, there's no point in doing these challenge studies if they if the disease they cause is <clears throat> don't reflect what happens in the community, of course, because the idea of doing a challenge study is that the data you get then does translate and, and predict what's going to happen when you go into a normal traditional field trial. So, so when we're designing how to do the challenge models, how to set them up is absolutely critical in that. So, so the first thing we do is very much focused on the virus itself that we use, if it is a virus, of course, so the pathogen that we're using. So and what I mean by that is it's crucial that that the viruses that we use are relatively recent. They need to be they need to be related to those viruses that are still circulating in the community it's, so that they're still relevant. It's no good working with a virus that that hasn't been circulating you know, for a couple of decades and everything that's circulating now is completely and utterly different to it because it, it might might not translate to to protecting what's going on if in the current community. So if you test a, test an antiviral against a really old one, it, it may not translate. Sometimes it will, sometimes it won't. So you, you need to understand the differences against against how the, the current vaccines targeted against and how the, the current virus is circulating and whether they look like the, the current challenge viruses. So strain choices is really important. Equally, to make a challenge virus, you need to you need to propagate it and grow it in cell culture to get sufficient quantity that you can really test it in a, in a really in-depth way. And the testing, of course, is to make sure that there's no other virus in there. So if we want to make an RSV challenge virus, we obviously need the RSV in there, but we, we can't have any other potentially contaminating virus in there. So you need a large volume to be able to do that in-depth molecular and also phenotypic testing to make sure it's, a, it's as pure a product as possible so that it is safe to give to in, individuals. But when you when you do that propagation in cell culture, any virus has the potential to start to adapt to the cells that you're growing it in. So it's really critical when you're designing how to manufacture the virus that you keep the number of passages really down to a minimum and, and that you keep the whole design very viro virologically sound. Otherwise, you start to introduce mutations. And when you have mutations, you have greater chance that virus now is is a little bit further away from the viruses that are circulating and of course that's not what we want we want them to be you know, as, as the same as possible as what's circulating in the natural environment so that's the first thing is control the virus that's being used second thing is then how much of the virus 
do we give to individuals now i think you could ask you could ask a hundred different researchers in in virology how much virus does it take to inoculate someone in the community and i think you'll get a hundred different answers because the truth is nobody really knows it's it's impossible to measure the amount of virus that that caused an infection and a naturally incurring infection because you a you don't know necessarily when you were exposed how you're exposed and how do you measure it anyway so it could be you touched something that that someone that had a got pathogen on it could be from a cough or a sneeze but the quantities and the environmental and all the other factors the heat and the temperature are all different each time so it's very difficult to, to measure what what levels of virus we come into contact when we when we contract it naturally but the the rule of thought is that it must be relatively small um, because if you think about you know most of the time you're not even aware it's there and in a sneeze it's spreading a lot of virus but it's spreading it over the diverse area so in a challenge study the, the key concept is equally to try and give the minimum amount of virus possible to cause a reproducible disease. Now, that's critical because if you go and give so much virus that you get really high infection rates and everybody gets infected. But if you give if you give too high levels of virus, it can be so artificial that no vaccine or antiviral has any chance of efficacy against it because you've you've given a really artificial system. Now, if you think about vaccines in particular, it's very stoichiometric where you have a certain number of antibodies or, or T cells, depending on the mechanism, versus the number of virus particles that are being produced. Now, that's a bit of a race then for what, what can replicate the fastest. Can, can you get proliferation of the immune response quicker, quicker, than, quicker than the virus can replicate or vice versa? And that, of course, determines whether you get infected or not and how quickly you can clear the disease if you if we give huge amount an artificially large amount of virus at the beginning we then could be in an artificial scenario and prevent potentially say that the vaccine doesn't work because we didn't protect them well actually it may have worked if we'd have given a lower amount of virus so so when we're setting up these these models we titrate the amount of virus we give different doses to different people starting with a very low amount of virus work out the minimum amount of virus required to get that reproducible infection such that we are literally only giving the smallest amount of virus we possibly can and by that way is how we we try and mimic what happens naturally by by making sure we're not giving too much by giving the minimum amount we can to get that measurable disease i think that's really the most the most critical thing that we have to do when we set up these models what are some notable challenge models you're currently developing apart from RSV and COVID? So it's a good question. So we, we're always keen to expand expand the portfolio of what we're working on to use our skill sets to help as many diseases as possible, to be honest with you, and also to update, update and expand the different strains that we work with because you know, with flu and COVID, there's not, not just one strain. So, so we are working with developing new strains on those. We've spoken about developing Omicron for coronavirus. We're also now developing new updated H3N2s and H1N1 strains for influenza. These, of course, are still respiratory pathogens and also metanumavirus as well, which is which is another commonly circulating common cold virus. Um, similar to RS, RSV. So we're working on setting up, up those models, but branching out beyond the respiratory pathogens. Of course, you can do challenge studies in other types of pathogens as well. Bacteria as, as well as viruses, um, so endemic what, um, ones 
enteric ones which are causing gastroenteritis you know there's been well cited cholera cholera models set up um, and one which we've been developing at hvivo recently is a malaria challenge model of course completely different because it's a now we're talking parasites not even viruses or bacteria now malaria challenge model is, is an interesting example because it's it's quite different to how setting up a respiratory challenge model because in malaria of course it's it's a mosquito-borne disease um, so it has to be injected it to, to actually transmit um, you can you can get infected controlled infected mosquitoes and, and infect someone that way that's one way of doing it but most commonly done is where you can get the sporozyte actually which is the actual uh, infectious unit of the pathogen the bloodborne phase and inject that directly into healthy volunteers and then that essentially goes straight to the bloodborne stage and, and mimics the life cycle and then well, that will turn out into full-blown malaria so so we discussed earlier that that most respiratory virus models in the healthy adults we're able to do them because we fully expect all of those volunteers to completely clear the disease without any medical intervention. Whether or not there is, is any treatments available, we would not expect to need them because those volunteers would clear the disease by means of their natural immune system. Now, of course, malaria is not like that. If we gave malaria to healthy volunteers, we certainly wouldn't expect them to clear it. And if we didn't treat them, then certainly a high proportion of those would go on to develop full-blown malaria, which of course could be dangerous. But the reason why we're able to do it ethically is because there are excellent anti-malarials around, <clears throat> such that we can be 100% sure that we can treat these individuals. So the difficulty with malaria as a disease is that in the community, you get resistance coming up. So lots of different strains of malaria that are resistant to the, to the, to the malaria types that are originally available now of course in the malaria challenge study you control what that strain is so we know 100 percent that the malaria which we give our volunteers are sensitive to the anti-malarial drugs that we're going to give them so we can be sure that we can treat them and this can be extremely useful for testing vaccines because it's very hard pathogen to to get vaccines against because it's it's extremely hard for the immune system to, to see a parasite. It's a much larger organism now than, than a virus or a bacteria. It's, it's very difficult um, to get effective vaccines against it. And the malaria challenge models can be really effective tool in actually testing for that because we can give someone malaria by, by taking their, their blood samples. We can then monitor very closely how the parasite is progressing and, and whether the vaccine was able to prevent the par parasite progressing up to a certain number of copies in their blood. And then as soon as they reach a certain number of copies in the blood, we can then immediately administer anti-malarials and treat the individual and turn them back to full health. So we're able to do that because we know the exact strains and we have very close monitoring of these volunteers. So it can be extremely useful in that, in that regard. So it's a malaria anti malaria human challenge model is really a good example of a, a challenge model where it, it is able to be done and able to be done very safely but does need intervention 
with a licensed product to be actually treated in individuals. This is different, of course, to influenza, RSV, metanumvirus, coronavirus, where, where we would we don't have the treatments available. And in some cases, we have some treatments available, but we'd never expect to need to use them because these volunteers would recover naturally from those respiratory virus infections. Dr. Catchwell, thanks so much for speaking with me today. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for your interest in chat models. It's a pleasure. For more pharma, biotech, and medtech news and insights, visit the InVivo website.